the Women Changing the World podcast, a podcast on a mission to bring you some of the most amazing women I know who are doing incredible things to generally make the world a better place. From corporate sustainability to straight up magic and everything in between, you'll meet the real life humans who are birthing the new. I'm your host, Liz Best, and I'm here to amplify the stories and voices of women who are changing the world. another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I am so, so, so excited to sit down with Jenny Blake today. Uh, Jenny Blake is an award-winning author and podcaster who loves helping people move from friction to flow through smarter systems powered by delightfully tiny teams. In 2022, she launched her third book, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. Jenny and I talked about all sorts of stuff, from how to stop being chief everything officer to how to design, manage, and support delightfully tiny teams, and how to look at metrics that actually bring you joy um, as opposed to, or perhaps in addition to, uh, more traditional business metrics. Uh, My conversation with Jenny was such a source of joy and inspiration for me. Her book has really changed how I approach my life and my business. Uh, And I just know you're going to enjoy my conversation with her as much as I did. Welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I am so excited. I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl too hard today. (laughs) I'm sitting down with Jenny Blake, who is an award-winning author and podcaster. She wrote the book Free Time, which I've found like so illuminating and also had to put down several times because there was just so much deep truth inside it. Um, Yeah, just really beyond excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Jenny. Yay. Thank you for having me. And I always joke on that my two podcasts are The Awkward Show because I basically fangirl on everyone to the point of awkwardness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always honored that I'm not alone in that if it happens the other direction. Thanks again for having me. Oh, I love it. Yeah, my partner's always like, don't gush too hard in your interviews. I'm like, well, I think part of what makes my interviews so much fun (laughs) is that it's sort of like a love fest. Um, But for anyone who's listening, Jenny, who doesn't already know you and your work, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I'm in year 12 of self-employment. The way I describe it now is I run a delightfully tiny media and IP licensing company because I've actually tried to strip away a lot of the services that I used to do over the years one-on-one. So to make a very long career story short, two years at a startup, five and a half years at Google in coaching and career development, and now over a decade of self-employment where my main activity, the thing I love the most are my two podcasts. And then I publish a book every five years or so. So Free Time is my third book. And it's all about helping small business owners, but really anybody in any role, leadership, all the way to the entry level, to just get out of the weeds and set our time free through smarter systems so we can do more of our best work and take more time off and actually enjoy the time that we have off. 
Mm, yes, I love it so much. I feel like your your book was recommended to me uh, by Jess Radpravar, who I know has been on oh, your yes. on one of your podcasts. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like it's just been making the rounds in so many of the entrepreneur circles that I'm in. I feel like overwhelm can so easily become a second language, both in entrepreneurship and in like sustainability and social impact work, which I know a lot of our listeners and the women in my world um, are in. I'm curious, what inspired you to write free time? I just feel that we're all inundated by so much coming at us every day. The news is always catastrophic because that's what keeps us hooked. Social media, I run my business without social media, but Every time a new platform launches, we get a new inbox. And that's to say nothing of the actual day-to-day work. I know that when I was in corporate, I had what I would call a brick wall of meetings every week where just (laughs) Monday through Friday, nine to five, I was always in back-to-back meetings. My inbox was overwhelming and overflowing. And first of all, it leads to burnout. I don't know. I probably don't have to tell you. We've all probably had that experience (laughs) where your body starts to shut down. And it's like, I cannot keep working this way. It's not sustainable. So the real reason I wrote free time was I really wanted to share very practical systems and strategies and principles to help people take small steps today that will free your time far into the future. So it's not, even sometimes people will call it a time management or productivity book. And in a way, those phrases make me cringe a little bit because to me, time management is like you're still managing and manipulating your time and trying to squeeze more with less. And there, it still feels like there's a sense of pressure. Even in the podcasting space, all the shows that are about like peak performance. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so much pressure. Whereas with free time, the reason I wrote the book and launched the podcast and everything was what are the small, almost systems oriented things that if we put it in place, we never really have to think about it again. So that each time, I see free time not just as leisure, but it's actually a verb. It's a muscle. It's a skill we can get better at. We can continually get better at freeing our time. And the more we do this, little by little, day by day, it's cumulative. Like our free time snowball really starts to build and we get momentum. And that can then lead to a sense of spaciousness, but also making the impact that you want to have in your work in the world. Totally. Oh, I love that reframe so much because I do think so often when we do think about like time and productivity, there's this like sick focus on like getting more time back to do more stuff and like the idea of like, no, we're not taking the time back to do more. We're taking the time back to dream more or be more or um, vision more or just relax and rest more. Um, or do whatever we want more of, but not more work. <laughs> right, right. And not more rigidity. I find that sometimes productivity advice, it's like hyper-controlled in a way, or there's just hyper-focus. And that is tiring. <laughs> it just doesn't always work. I love Cal Newport's work around, he, he wrote a book called Deep Work, which I love. And then in one of his latest, A World Without Email, he talks about the hyperactive hive mind way of working. But I also think we need to have space for deep rest. And that's what I feel is one of the things missing most from our work culture is just so always on. And we feel that if we need a day off or or worse, we get sick and then we actually have to take those days off. I find that my mind always wants me and expects me to get back to work like twice as soon as my body is actually ready to do that. And so I think if we can build in more margin time spaciousness in advance. Can you imagine, and this is something I've been working on lately, booking my calendar 
only to 40%. What if I didn't book it up to 80, 90% every week? What if I only allowed myself to book it to 40% so that I could really flow within the days and decide closer to the day or to the week what I actually want to do, want to focus on? Oh, I love that so much. And it sounds like such a fantasy as I'm hearing the kind of fantasy that I would love for more of us to make reality myself very much included. Well, on that note of it seeming far away or like a fantasy, for sure, it has taken me my entire life to kind of rewrite, as you've read in the book, I talk about your inner time blueprint. And just as some of us grow up with ideas and stories about money that we inherit from our family or society, so we do with time. I remember being a kid, six, seven, eight years old, my schedule was crammed. It was, I would go to school and you know, when you're young, school starts really early, 7 a.m. And then my mom had me in all these after school activities because she worked a full-time job. So as a child, I was always running back to back to back to make appointments. Of course, I'm going <laughs> to recreate that as an adult. And I know that it is difficult if you work at a company, there's obviously more norms and more expectations, but usually everybody would be relieved and would benefit if the team would do no meeting Mondays or no meeting Wednesdays or half day Fridays. Those are things that motivate everybody. And so I know that you can't always do a 180 overnight, but probably if you're feeling a certain way, other people in your orbit are as well. Definitely. Oh yeah. I think there's so much truth to that. Well, and I also would love to, um, take a step back. I know you gave us sort of the the high level version of how you came to be here, but something that I find really interesting and really enjoy asking people in a bit more depth on the podcast is like, how did you like come to this moment that we find you in and would love to really just invite you to like take up space and tell us a little bit more of your story? Sure. One of the things that I guess it has been a through line in my career is just is struggling feeling very sensitive. There's a term called highly sensitive person, HSP. I'm an empath. I'm a recovering people pleaser and perfectionist. These were themes that I'm almost 40, which I cannot believe I'll turn 40 this year. But in my 20s, those themes were very prominent, this perfectionist, people pleasing, and yet highly sensitive. So the result was I had a, a lot of anxiety and specifically a lot of anxiety around transitions and change. So I left school early to go work at that startup and I felt so lost and confused. Just my friends were still in school. I found adulting to be very difficult. And that's what sparked me to start a blog in 2005 called Life After College. And so my impetus has always been that if I'm struggling with something and I have to read a hundred books, I know you love books too, Liz. If I have to read all these books, why isn't there one that could be a guide for somebody in a similar position? And so I wrote my first book. Then the same thing happened when I transitioned to Google. I kept hitting these plateaus, what I now would call pivot point every few years. And I felt horrible. Like, is there something wrong with me? I'm at this dream company. It's perfect on paper. Why can't I just be happy in my career? And I, thankfully, I was able to pivot internally a couple times. When I left Google and still was wondering what's next after two years of self-employment, then it's really terrifying because there's no longer a paycheck to fund the exploration, this existential crisis. And that's what inspired me to write Pivot. So once again, I felt like 
there was no language. We only would call it a midlife crisis or a quarter life crisis. And I remember always feeling when I would hit these plateaus every few years, I felt like I was in a raft in the ocean, just getting rocked by every wave while everyone else was in a cruise liner. These moments just took me down. I, I was shaming and blaming myself. I felt horrible. I felt confused, alone. And I genuinely wondered, like, am I ever going to be happy in my career? Because what's wrong with me? Am I just one of those entitled millennials that the media keeps talking about? <laughs> and finally, with Pivot, I tried to reverse engineer. I, that's why I adopted this motto. If change is the only constant, let's get better at it. Because I wanted that for myself. I wanted to find a way. And I also had this theory, what if I'm not alone? What if I'm not crazy? What if, in fact, the world is accelerating and I'm not the only one that's going to be getting a little restless a little more often than usual? Or sometimes change chooses you. Like a lot of the tech companies this year have announced rounds and rounds of layoffs where people are getting pivoted. So I realized early, I would say, because that book came out, I started working on it in 2013 and it came out in 2016. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, everyone's now talking about pivoting in a career sense. Whereas when I first started working on the idea, nobody was. It was just this niche startup term, that small right. startup. Everyone was just like trying to find their cruise ship at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's the driver. And same thing with free time. I was just tired of feeling tired and burnt out and frustrated with even things like when I realized I have full autonomy over my time. Why am I still burnt out? Why am I still making these choices? Why am I still cramming my calendar or doing too many things? So it's just a continual process of like kind of solving my own problem, doing a lot of research, then simplifying the process, creating systems around it and sharing it back out. Oh, I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing. And I do feel like, yeah, so often I find in my own work, it like I'm going out and like taking in all as much input as I possibly can. And then I'm like, how can I distill this and make it as simple as possible for other people to do the same? Um, and I feel like you've done such a, an elegant job of that um, with free time in particular. But I feel like I'm sure with like with all the work that you've been doing over these years, it's just the one that's most relevant and top of mind to me right now. I think the thing that really like it like went deep and felt so true was this idea in free time of like being the chief everything officer in your business and like learning how to not be the chief everything officer in your business. Um, do you have any like words of wisdom for anyone who's like, oh, yeah, that's me? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's so I think the crux of being the chief everything officer is Usually it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem of delegation, but not just financially speaking. So sometimes I think we're at that place because maybe we don't want to do everything, but we think, well, I can't afford to hire help. The other thing that happens is just a mental hurdle, which is, no, I need to do everything myself because I am the only one that knows how to do everything. And just the thought of hiring and training somebody is very daunting. And then if you've ever gotten burned, by trying to delegate and then somebody completely <laughs> bungles something, then it's just the urge is just to take it all back again and control the process. And even if you're the bottleneck, at least you're aware of everything and sort of controlling everything. And I feel that control is one of the Achilles heels of a small business owner. It's like when we keep too, too much control, when we hoard the control, that's when we burn out and we become the bottleneck. So the first thing I would say with 
stepping out of that role of chief everything officer, for one, do less. What would it look like to do less in the business? And that could mean a lot of things. It could mean having less projects at a given time, fewer projects. It could mean fewer meetings on the calendar. Maybe it means fewer clients, but you raise your rates. And then also, of course, doing less in terms of you don't have to do everything yourself. I've had I've had VAs even even to this day where sometimes it's just a couple hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars a month for 20 hours a week. Or, you know, it depends if you're hiring stateside or overseas. But you can start by delegating the stuff that really drains you, that you dread, that you hate. Because I think one hurdle is trying right away to delegate big, important stuff. Nobody's going to want to let go of that. They're, the stakes are too high. But if there's things that you already dread and you just hate doing, you're going to be so relieved to know that somebody else has got you. They're working on it. Hopefully, they even enjoy that type of work. And that's when I think the delegation momentum builds on itself because you start small, you build trust, you get over that delegation curve of having to do a little more work up front to explain and teach. But the key element of this is that every time you delegate, ask the person to document everything the whole process, any feedback you give, anything they hear you say, all of it should be captured so that you don't have to repeat yourself if you ever delegate that same type of work to a different person in the future. So ideally your business and your projects, even if it's just a side hustle, the documentation should always be getting smarter and stronger as you work, even as you're delegating. Oh, I love that. I think you just, you really nailed it in terms of like those two things that often stop people from delegating is either, um, you know, feeling like you can't afford to delegate and or feeling like you are the only person who knows all the things. And if you've been burned before <laughs> with delegating, then you, the instinct is to take it all back. Um, but I, yeah, I feel like there comes a moment, um, at least I found in my business where it's like, I can't, I can't execute on all the things that feel important and that I want to execute on in my business and continue to do all of the things that I've been doing. Something that I have found really interesting and that I, I know a number of women around me have been like talking about and grappling with um, is like the question of like what kind of team you want to build in your business. And I love your concept of like the delightfully tiny team. Um, Cause I think so often there definitely is so much business advice out there of like, basically this idea that you need to like grow until you hire like your first full-time employee. And then the goal is just to like keep hiring full-time employees until, I, I don't know. I don't know what the until is until, but I feel like that's a lot of like the wisdom I was first exposed to when I started building my business. And what I've been hearing, at least in my world, is that for a lot of people, like, some version of the delightfully tiny team is actually like the vehicle to running the business that you actually want to run. So I'm curious if you could explain um, for people who are listening who might not be familiar with the delightfully tiny team concept, like what inspired you to come up with it and like why a delightfully tiny team might be the answer as opposed to like world domination. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I always felt pressure as well to hire and build a team and grow a business. I became a people manager very young. I was 24, working at Google, and I didn't like it. I tried to like it. I loved coaching, and I went to coach certification training in 2008. That was also when I became a people manager. 
But a couple years in, I found it incredibly stressful. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like all the extra admin around it. I really preferred to be an individual contributor. And that was my first moment of being very honest with myself because especially in a company, you feel, well, this is the way to to grow here. This is the way to advance. But as I looked up the chain of command, I was working many layers under Sheryl Sandberg at that time. I just thought, I don't want to be Cheryl. I don't want a pyramid of managers under me. I, it doesn't fit my personality. I'm a creative. I like taking things from zero to one, like idea to launched. I'm also really introverted. It overwhelms me to, and I mentioned the sensitive piece. It, it really overwhelms me to feel responsible for too many people, for their feelings, for their day-to-day work, for their complaints. And so even as I was leaving Google, I remember thinking, I don't want to build a 100-person consulting company. I want to create scalable services, ideally with recurring revenue, so that every stream of income that I run has scale, as in I do the same amount of work, but I could reach more and more people. And with recurring revenue, there's a lot more predictability and, and stability and security. But beyond that, I want my team, I want a minimum viable team. I did an episode on this called MVT. I want the smallest possible team that I can have. And you're right, there's so much pressure to hire full-time. I'm sure other business owners have different takes on this. I don't work full-time in my business. I work 10 to 20 hours a week, so I don't really want anyone working full-time. I don't want anybody just killing time because they're supposed to work 40 hours in a week. Who wants to even work 40 hours in a week if we had the choice? So it never made sense to me to hire a full-time person I never wanted to incentivize just dragging time out. I would rather people work on things that they love and get it done quickly. I like when I'm just one of many clients. Most of my team members over the last 10 years have worked five to 10 hours a week for me. I never had so much going on in my business. That might be different for other people with different business models. Like if you run a bakery, you might need full-time employees. (laughs) But I do think that it's important as business owners and leaders to get honest about what size team do you most thrive in managing? Because all of the research about team size, it, it only speaks to effectiveness and productivity. Like, oh, well, the average mm. team size of seven is the most productive and has the best communication and the best morale. Okay, great. But for the manager, what's your ideal team size? And the biggest my team grew was when this book Free Time came out. I had expanded to all these areas had an attorney on retainer, had a consultant on a retainer, had two assistants for the pivot side of the business, had a new assistant, had a podcast team. I hated it. So very quickly <laughs> after the book launched, and and there were there were aspects I really loved, like the team that did the social media for the book knocked it out of the park. Podcast production team knocks it out of the park. But short of that, I had expanded the team in a way that felt distracting and draining to me. So I've never been happier than when I scaled it back down. And sometimes I think we only learn this by doing it and then giving ourselves permission to go the other direction and not taking that as a sign of failure or as a personal shortcoming. Right. But instead seeing it as a win to be like, okay, this isn't working and going in the other direction is going to like, like, how do we make the thing that makes us happier the win and not the thing that has like, growth or success or whatever like label attached to it the win my friend mike calls it keeping up with the entrepreneurs <laughs> where 
to look at other people. And then some of my favorite stories and interviews that I've done on my show are with people who've also downshifted. I find it fascinating. Like they might build a company up to 30 full-time employees, but then their next venture has no full-time employees. Tell me more. Like I love to hear those stories because these are people who I'm always hard on myself. Well, maybe I'm just not skilled enough to to manage it or I'm I, these are my shortcomings as a person and as a business owner. So I always enjoy when I've heard stories of people who were very successful at bigger team sizes, but they just don't choose that anymore or for the next go round. Yeah, I've observed that with some of the people in my world too, like taking that like I don't like the smaller team path and it does seem to be like so much more fulfilling. I think there's a season for everything, but I just so appreciate like the language that you put behind it. And the last thing I'll say is a delightfully tiny team is crucial because if you don't have any support, you're going to be tired, taxed, burnt out, overwhelmed. So you, I do think it's important not to be the bottleneck as the business owner, which usually means at least two contractors to help take the load off. So you can determine your what delightfully tiny means to you, but it's a delightfully tiny team. It's not doesn't mean having zero team because that's where the stress comes back in. Totally. Well, I do think what's so nice about the delightfully tiny team approach, like as I've thought about my own business, is it's like it allows me to hire people who are like experts and brilliant at the thing that they do, um, as opposed to me as the generalist trying to like be all the things. Yes. And that's a big relief. One, oh, I got to remember who said it to me, but somebody said experts don't need training. And mm-hmm. that was the biggest relief of who I chose to work with because when I've hired true experts, I don't have to train them. They teach me. So book marketing consultant, social media team, podcast production. My life only got easier when I stopped hiring people that were like entry level that I needed to train from the ground up and started hiring experts, just like you said. Oh my gosh, a thousand percent. I feel like I've tried both over the last three years and uh, hiring experts has been like without a doubt It is just such a game changer in terms of like the calls become calls that I look forward to. I'm learning, like I'm growing, I'm like identifying systems that could be put in place in other places in my business. It just feels really good. And it feels really cool too, to get to support um, and collaborate with people who are working in their zone of genius. Absolutely. I second that. Is network on your 2023 to-do list? Hi there, it's Liz. If you're liking our conversation and our approach to personal development, career advancement, and living a life that turns you on, I invite you to join our community, the Girls Club Collective. We are the intentionally intimate personal and professional development community for women who are changing the world. Instead of asking for a seat at the table, we decided to build our own. Like most change agents and rebels with a cause, you don't often have enough hours in the day to change the world and cultivate a strategic network. If overwhelm has become your second language and you're feeling tired of trying to convince your own marketing team to actually read your ESG report, you're in the right place. We know that sometimes trying to make a difference can feel like being that one person out on the dance floor trying to get the party started. And that's why we created the Girls Club Collective. It's where women changing the world organize, and all you have to do is show up as yourself. 
We are the anti-establishment version of the Boys Club, reimagining ambition and leading the movement of meaningful work fueled by moxie, strategy, and a little bit of magic. That means you not only gain access to a community of people you need to know, you'll also take a look at how you can grow as a leader, what you really want, and why your dream of living by the beach and working for yourself isn't as crazy as it sometimes feels. By offering monthly peer advisory, salons on timely and relevant topics, networking power hours, and more, the Girls Club Collective is your extended team, your extra brains, and an energizing environment that is geared toward your personal and professional growth. We believe that changing the world is a team sport. Join the collective designed for exactly that and use the code PODCAST, that's all caps, PODCAST, for 10% off your first year of membership. You can find the link to join us in the show notes. And I cannot wait to see you in the collective. Well, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, um, one of our big themes on the podcast this season is community. And I know the BFF community is something that you started. I would love to hear a little bit more about that and what inspired you to to start the BFF community. This is a community that I've had for over eight years now, believe it or not. It has shifted. It's had its own pivot points, but it's my favorite place to hang out online. I never, I, I was on social media early days in my business, but Social media, especially now more than ever, does not really have psychological safety. Whatever you say is public for the world. And I feel that there's this constant trepidation, like who's going to tear me down for what next? And it didn't use, it didn't start out like that. But the amazing thing about either being someone to create and launch your own private community or being a part of one or both, ideally, for me, it's this safe space and Over the years, I've gotten really clear with my language of who it's for. It's for generous, smart, creative, heart-based business owners. And if that doesn't apply to you, don't join. If I say we operate on a take a penny, leave a penny basis, like we actually want givers in the community, people who are excited to give and share their experience more than they are to see like, what can I take? What can I get from this group? But the most important thing has been we all get this little incubator to test ideas, to run polls with each other. What book title do you like best? What cover art do you like best? I'm thinking of launching a course. How would you price it? I'm really struggling with overwhelm, client overwhelm, like whatever it is, we have this place where we can talk and share stories and get feedback. And so over these last eight years, no matter what form it took, I'm always excited to show up for that and to help connect other business owners with each other. That's super joyful for me too. And so um, the best thing we did was moving off of Facebook private groups. That was a couple years ago. We now use Circle for that. I have a private podcast feed and we do a, a live call or two where we all get together and sometimes do hot seats. And um, that was crucial too. Like getting off of Facebook was very important because people get really riled up and then they drop into the community forum and it just, it the tone shifted over the years that we had had it. All of a sudden the tone, it got kind of weird. <laughs> so moving to a different service has been very helpful for the community. 
Oh, that's so interesting. I actually, we just launched the Girls Club Collective, which is um, my private community in the last couple months. And we started on Circle. Um, I previously nice. had like some community happening on Slack, but I'm so excited for all the functionality of Circle. It really is just like such a great space to be able to have an online world. Yeah. And it's nice. Like, I find going back to Cal Newport in the hyperactive hive mind, it's like even tools like Slack can be overwhelming for people where it's hard to keep up. So I do like Circle allows you to sort of organize content or search, have a mobile app. It's yeah, it's a good user experience for sure. Totally. When I think it's such an interesting observation that like, like, I'm in a number of communities that are on Circle. When I go to Circle, I am in a community mindset. But like when you are running a community in a place like Facebook or Slack, it's like when you're on Slack, you're probably more often than not in a work mindset. And when you're in Facebook, you're in a like, (laughs) you know, looking at like this whole microcosm of the world mindset. Um, I could see how um, even just in thinking about like that user interface piece of like entering into like community mode, I think can be so valuable. Yeah. I love that. And I really love Gina Bianchini has her own software called Mighty Networks, but they have a community design masterclass that is phenomenal. I've learned so much. And she just came out with a book called Purpose. She's great. I love her resources and I love their approach to community building, which is also about removing the creator, you or me from the role of guru. And instead, Mm. how do you facilitate conversation? And I think some people don't realize how tricky it can be to get a community to have escape velocity of momentum of people chiming in themselves where it doesn't, again, going back to the chief everything officer, doesn't just hinge on the community leader to always be poking at the fire, like prodding and kind of trying to ignite and maintain that fire. Oh, totally. I'll have to read that book and I'll definitely check out her masterclass as well. A purpose has come up, I feel like, on my radar a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. Um, and Tatiana Figueredo, who I learned a lot about um, like building community businesses from, that was something that she shared actually on the podcast as well. Um, just this idea of like how is how is her role as a community leader so often like to step back and to let the, like it's such a different leadership model than I think so many of us like maybe grew up with of like leadership is knowing when to step back and, and like let things happen as opposed to, I think, especially when you're first starting off and you are poking at the fire, making sure it catches. Yeah. And the little things like they say, um, this I learned from Gina and her team, but don't be the first one to jump in on the thread or make sure you post thought starters that someone could answer in one word from their mobile phone. Like almost sometimes we overthink it and we think, oh, I let me jump in and make sure everybody gets an answer right away. But that just sends the message that, well, I'm the leader and I have all the answers or posting questions that are so serious and in-depth as a prompt. But then people think, well, oh, I don't have anything good to say or they get self-conscious. And so instead it's like, what's one word to describe how you're feeling today? Boom. Everybody can just do that from their phone. Or I love even crowdsourcing from the group. What podcast are you loving right now? What business book? blew your mind recently, just some simple things to even balance out the content. The other thing I'll say is, and this goes for whether you're creating community or I talk to a lot of business owners about licensing their IP. We have this desire sometimes to throw in the kitchen sink when in fact, to another theme of this conversation, less is more. So in a community or even in a course, 
actually throwing in too much, even in a book, throwing in too much is actually not in service of the person on the other side. It's overwhelming. They don't have a sense of progress. It's hard to tick off their list. Someone told me that about my book about free time. And I agree with them. It's so thick and so long and there's so much in it. And I put every best system tool and best practice I could, but it's not a quick read. It's not really a quick win. There's so much there. It's a good reference guide in contrast to a book like my friend Nick wrote one called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. You could read the book in one sitting and he kind of guarantees that by the time you finish the book, you will have run at least one two-hour cocktail party with your neighbors. And I just love that. It's just short, sweet, to the point, and everybody gets a feeling of accomplishment. So I think that's another like word of, <laughs> word of advice on community. Totally. Oh, I love that so much. And that was definitely, I feel like I'm grateful. That was some advice I got from a couple people in, in thinking about um, our community. And my, of course, my inclination was like, oh, we can do this event and this event and this event and this event. It's like, no, I don't, I don't want to set people up to feel guilty. Like the people in my world are busy. They have a lot on their plate. It was right. like, how can we strip back the desire, my desire to like host every possible event and be like, okay, what are like the three things we can do on a monthly or quarterly basis that are actually going to be mean- meaningful for people? Right. Because then sometimes they cancel because they go, I can't keep up. I'm not being a good community member. I'm going to cancel. Whereas as the leader in our mind, we're thinking, oh, if I don't offer enough stuff, people will cancel. It's not necessarily true. It's creating, helping create transformation. It's helping create conversation, but it's not about and, it's, and what Gina teaches, it's not even just about knowledge transfer. That's a course, but a community is we are on a shared journey together. Like with free time, it's we are together, we are on a journey figuring out how do we be heart-based business owners who are high net freedom in the world and in a world where it always seems like more is more mm-hmm. and grow bigger is better. Absolutely. Well, and I know you've stripped out like a lot of the different um, – things that maybe were part of your business in the past. And one of the things that has stayed um, are your two podcasts. Um, I'm curious, like what's inspired you to keep the podcast? Um, Who should listen to which one? Like tell us a little bit more about your own like podcasting journey. Yeah. Well, I started the Pivot Podcast eight years ago before the book came out. I thought if I'm going to interview experts, I might as well hit record. (laughs) I thought it was this scrappy little side project. And what was so surprising was that by the time the book came out, a little over a year after that, it had become the front and center favorite thing that I was doing in my business. So it just came out of nowhere. Again, I had I expected nothing of it, nothing from it. But I was meeting all these interesting people. I would put a book down and get to talk one-on-one with the author. Like that continues to blow my mind of just who you can meet and, and ask personal questions of your experience of their work. And and then I launched when free time, the book came out in 2021. Sorry, the book came out in 2022. In 21, I launched the free time podcast. And I decided that I tell I say they're like skis in my business. And my business is on two IP skis because I didn't <laughs> want to shut down pivot. It had a ton of momentum, the book, coaching, speaking, licensing to companies. So pivots happy, gets one episode a week. And then free time is really my playground because I'm thinking all the time about how to free more time, how to run my business. And that I do a guest episode on Tuesday and a solo episode on Friday. Some people have said, oh, that's so intense. Why are you creating so much? I like that it holds me accountable. So basically I feel that I get to make 
eight friends a month across the two shows, let's say guest episodes, like seven to eight friends. And then four to five solo episodes means I got to come up with four or five ideas every month, like four or five versions of what I call public original thinking that I like being held accountable to do deep work. And so, yeah, to, to your question, I just, I love doing them. By far, it's the most work for the least revenue. <laughs> the time to revenue <laughs> ratio is not good, but then the joy ratio is so high that I'm trying to keep the rest of my schedule as clear as possible and just somehow balance out the revenue scales if I can grow the shows. Totally. Well, and, and um, I've found and I've had conversations with other founders who have podcasts or who've thought about podcasting that like the rev, there's so many ways to uh, like evaluate the the value or the impact of a podcast that are like so far beyond revenue. Um, and as business owners, yes. of course, we look at the revenue piece as well. <laughs> My friend Jay, he, well, I hired him as a coach as well as a creative coach. He talks about what are the more motivating metrics? So of course we could look mm. at number of downloads or revenue, but he's like, that doesn't motivate me to do great work. So for me, it's like, how many new friends have I made as a result of conducting interviews or how many listeners write and say, I loved this so much. I sent it to three friends or I, you know, one of my um, non mainstream metrics is just that I hang up from an interview and the guest says, that was so fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I love how Jay kind of, he has a great podcast as well, Unthinkable and great platform, great programs. But I love how he's kind of encouraging us as well, exactly as you said, like what motive, what metrics are more motivating than those bottom line ones? And I also love his, his mantra, don't be the best, be their favorite. Like, mm. What if we didn't have to be the best? What if we just worked to serve a small group of people and be their favorite? I love that. And I have to say with this podcast, what was interesting to me in looking at like the Spotify wrapped stats from last year is like the stat that stood out to me the most was the single digit number of people for whom my podcast was their number one podcast. I was like, oh my God, there's there's whole people in this world who like the number one thing they listened to this year was this. And like, that is such a meaningful metric as opposed to like the, you know, the downloads and all that stuff is also great and important, but I love the idea of like, but what's the metric that actually brings you joy? Oh my gosh. I love, I didn't even look at that for my shows. I'd be so curious. (laughs) You're right. That is the highest honor. If there are five people in this world or nine, if it's a single digit, who you are their go-to person, as people have said to me in the past, it's like, if you had nine people sitting in front of you at a coffee shop and you were holding court and talking and riffing and stuff, that's a compliment, you know, or if you had a room of a hundred people, that's a lot of people, a thousand, a lot of people. Totally. Well, I, I think that. so often just like the way that things work like in this world is like, you know, the, like the thousands and the whatever metrics, um, can feel demoralizing. But I think, as you said, if you think about like the whole human beings um, who are engaging with this content, it can be so impactful. Um, well, I, I mean, I could talk to you for hours and I would love to, but I also know that we both have <laughs> other stuff we have to get to today. Um, I wanted to ask a couple quick hit questions before sure. we wrap up. Um, so the first one is uh, if you could give your younger self some advice, Um, what's like the best nugget or piece of wisdom that you wish you could tell your younger self? Mm, I'm going to go with do less, worry less. 
Now, as I say it, I know if I had just said worry less, I wouldn't have listened. Same if I said do less. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, something along those lines, like less is more would have helped me if I had done that earlier. Mm, definitely. Um, well, and the other sort of related question I always ask people is like, do you have like an inspirational post-it that like you're looking at right now? Or like if you were to like offer people like just an, again, like kind of a nugget, a post-it size piece of advice or wisdom, what would you want to offer? Well, Tosha Silver, it's not exactly post-it size, but anyone listening, you can Google this. Google Tosha Silver Abundance Prayer. Um, oh, it's a, sorry, it's an Abundance Change Me Prayer. But I read her book, Outrageous Openness. I, I think if I had to write it on a post-it, it would be something around surrender. Show me the mm. one next step. And I would just remind myself every time I felt stuck or stressed, surrender, show me one next step. And that's Tosha Silver. Really, her work taught me how to do that. And the Abundance Change Me Prayer is such a perfect summation of just an offering that you can give to kind of release that control we were talking about and surrender and be more open to what's in flow. Mm, I will absolutely look that up. Thank you. We'll link that in the show notes too. Um, and then last question, because this is the Women Changing the World podcast, I always ask people if you could change one thing about the world, what's the one thing that you would like to see be different? Well, for women changing the world, I feel specifically for women changing the world, I want to give a shout out to my friend Sarah, who runs a platform called Startup Parent. She's really such an advocate, but like everything from just paying stay-at-home moms, like can there be a stipend for stay-at-home, it's not even stay-at-home, for moms or parental leave or like anything that can just acknowledge how much invisible work women end up doing, still are doing. I just feel that to, we, oh, I'll, get, I'll get so worked up. But the fact that we have to just like tooth and nail fight for every inch of like household equity and equality. And that's even in the, that's even if you're in a, in a good loving partnership with so many women aren't. So I would just say, I would just continue to recognize and validate and help women rise through just their, their time and acknowledging all the invisible work that they're doing. So that's visible and abundantly compensated somehow. That would be my dream. Mm, yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I don't even have kids. I don't even have kids. I just feel, I just feel for the people who are, it's like, if they always say this, you know, it's like, if, if men X, Y, Z, we would have invented a solution for this a long time ago. And it's like, if men were the ones that had to give birth or something, or if men were the ones that have been staying home for most of the history post-agricultural times, like things would be so different. So, and I love my men, love, love all the men in our world. Most of them, well, you know, the good ones, but <laughs> now I'm really going to ramble on a soapbox. So I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, I love it. This is the perfect place to ramble on that soapbox. Um, well, for people who uh, are loving like your work and your ideas as much as I do, where's the best place for people to um, find you, follow along, um, while also like so appreciating and respecting the social media free aspect of your business, but what's the best place for people to learn more? Sure. Yeah. You won't find me. You'll see me there, but I won't have been active in any amount of time. And I did have a team do a social media takeover a year ago when the book launched. The best place you can search for 
Pivot with Jenny Blake or Free Time with Jenny Blake, wherever you're listening to this. And for info on free time and what we talked about, there's a free toolkit. If you visit itsfreetime.com slash toolkit, you'll get all the free templates that relate to a lot of what we talked about, including a delegation task tracker if you want to stop being the chief everything officer. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So I will just put in another plug. Like some of the resources on there are so amazing and inspiring. I'm sure they're all amazing and inspiring. I haven't tackled them all yet, but um, definitely recommend for anyone listening who wants to like take some stuff off their plate that you check out uh, Jenny's website. Jenny, it has been such a privilege and a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you so much for making time for our conversation today. Likewise. What a treat to get to connect and Your background of flower-filled wallpaper and these bright colors is just so joyful. So thank you for all the great questions (laughs) and just even sparking joy with the visuals. I know not everyone will see this on video, but um, I I love the space you've created, both physically and the topics and conceptually. So thank you, Liz. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Please rate and review the Women Changing the World podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is liz.best, that's L-I-S dot B-E-S-T, or you can find me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Liz Best. Join my mail list by visiting elizabethbest.com slash monthly meditation, and you'll receive all the latest updates on events, retreats, and opportunities to work with me, plus a monthly love note from my heart to your inbox. I am so excited to keep in touch, and I'll see you in the next episode.